Okay, hello. Uh, thanks for coming to the Art of the Interview with our special guest, Michael Alago. Okay, uh, let, let's hear it for uh, Drew Stone in that film clip. Um, I'd, like to, I'd like to call your attention to this, uh, this gentleman here, Peter Robel. Uh, he's the art of the Art of the Interview, and he'll be drawing the show live as it goes on. So we like to feature his artwork during the show. He'll be down here drawing, and maybe later you can talk to him. And he loves to draw people still life. So Peter Robel, everybody, let's hear it. Okay, uh, and you should RSVP as soon as possible. Next month, we're going to have a, uh, our guest will be John Holmstrom from Punk Magazine. Did all the Ramones artwork. Okay, so uh, no further ado, I'd like to introduce you to filmmaker and author Stephen Blush. Yeah. Come on, everybody, let's hear it for Tony Mann, our co host, and my right hand. What you're about to see <laughs> is part of a series. Once a month, I sit down with one of the great minds of rock culture. I know the backstories and the questions cool. to ask, which is why we call this the art of the interview. Okay, so thanks for coming. Tonight's guest, his work behind the scenes has literally changed the face of popular music. He has signed artists from Cindy Lauper and Nina Simone to Metallica and White Zombie, and he is the subject of a wonderful new documentary by director Drew Stone that is popular on the Netflix platform and elsewhere. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Michael Alago. I'm not going out. I'm going to stay right here. Okay, because I like to see everybody who's here. Hello, familiar faces. Yes. Hi, Charlie. Danny, everybody. Just so I feel comfortable doing all of this. <gasps> Anton, how the hell did you get here? Oh, Ben Lemer. Ben Lemer, I know, for 36 years from when he was at Circus Magazine back in the day. And we've just, you know, it's, it's like a wonderful thing when you see people who have been friends for such a long time. And I don't like to call them old friends, but um, just people who you, an old friend. Um, it's just people that you know for this period of time. I think it says something about probably how crazy all our characters are, but it, it, it's a wonderful thing. Michael, thank you so oh. much for coming out. Uh, we'll get your phone off and we'll be ready to go. Um, and this is always like that? Yeah, you oh. know, it makes you, it's going to make you beautiful. It's going to make you beautiful. All right. Well, so, that's not the case already. Well, we just, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. So let's start with a little bit of flavor. We were talking before. Tell us about your family growing up, your first musical moments, and anybody involved in music. It happened really early. Oh, oh yeah, sure. So, so kind of talk about uh, like this this epiphany, if you will. Well, yeah, I grew up in Brooklyn. I mostly grew up with my my, my mom. Um, uh, my dad left us when I was twelve, so it was just me, my mom, and my sister Cheryl. Uh, 
you know, I have a book coming out in, I don't know, the end of this year, and I talk about this in the book, that uh, I think I came out of the womb loving music. Um, there was nothing for, I forfeited people for music. And um, as a young person, I just sat on my stoop and, well, prior to sitting on the stoop, I would listen to AM radio. I tell this story a lot. And 77 WABC AM radio, Harry Harrison uh, and Dan Ingram, um, they all played such marvelous music. And back in the day, radio was not formatted the way it's formatted now. Now, I don't even listen to the radio now because everything sounds the same, everything is auto-tuned, and it's just, it's, it's just nothing music to me. But back in the day, you know, in the 70s, uh, there were seven-inch records, and I had my little Panasonic record player. And I think some of the first singles that I got was uh, Thin Lizzy's The Boys Are Back in Town, Rare Earths, I Just Want to Celebrate, uh, Aretha Franklin's Respect, Archie Bell and the Drells, Tighten Up. So all of that, because of radio, informed my listening. And my listening became just like a very wide uh, spectrum of music. Mm -hmm. So I know at, like, at age 14, you're already involved with the Dead Boys and stuff, but kind of talk about like mm -hmm. punk rock, being an outsider, finding mm. this outsider music, and, and hooking up with like probably the most dangerous band of, of ever, if not Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess at that time period, I wasn't actually into metal yet. I was listening to, uh, I was listening to Alice Cooper and Todd Rundgren and Roxy Music and uh, David Bowie and Lou Reed. Those were like my favorites. And then out, and what also informed my listening is that uh, my dad worked on Astor Place in the East Village and there was a great newsstand there and I noticed this newspaper called The Village Voice that came out, well, you know, every Wednesday and to a young person, I was, what I was told was there was um, advertisements for music and art and theater and porn. All my favorites. <laughs> Trust me. Yeah. I was just telling Steve backstage that uh, in my memoir, it, uh, every, it goes from Brooklyn to never fall in love with a hooker. Uh, please, don't ask. You'll read it back and when it comes out, and you'll either be mortified or you'll totally understand what I'm talking about. What are we talking about now? Okay, so... I know, Drew, you told me not to say that, but... Yeah. So we're talking about... Uh, uh, okay. yes. boys, so yeah. all of a sudden I see these ads in the back pages of the Village Voice and there was always this long strip of, what are you saying, shut up back there Drew, uh, CBGB. <laughs> so uh, I, I think one of those weekends they were having, uh, bringing bands over from the UK. Everyone from Death School to, oh my God, Eddie and the Hot Rods to The Damned. And the Dead Boys were opening up for The Damned. But I also knew about them because uh, I was reading a lot about Sire Records. And Sire Records was just starting to sign all these type bands. So I go to CB's and I see the Dead Boys. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things like I lost my mind. And I lost my mind. No, 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 no. In a good way. Um, because... They were unlike any band that I had seen up until that point. You know, Stiv, I always say, was like the bastard child of Iggy Pop. And uh, he'd be up there shaking it and taking a mic cord and hanging himself from the ceiling. I mean, it was all riveting to me for a 14-year-old. And uh, so after that, I just uh, wound up like living at CBGB. And I lived there, and Hilly always said to us underage kids, you can come in, but if I see you with alcohol, 
you know, you're going to get like suspended for two weeks or so, I, something like that. But he was like a surrogate dad to all of us. And he understood that all these young people who were coming into the city just wanted to hear music. And really, I was there until, oh my gosh, until the very last day. And I remember this, it was October 15th, 2006. And Patti Smith played. And I was standing outside with David Peel, have a marijuana. My friend Danny Fields, who um, was responsible then for Iggy Pop and the Ramones. And the lovely and the late and the marvelous Jim Carroll, who wrote the Basketball Diaries. Um, he was something, very special character. So we were all out there just laughing and screaming and having a good time that very last day of CBGB. Mm -hmm. So with the Dead Boys, it's like, I, I kind of fit this all together, but yes. four, there's all these 14, 15-year-old kids hanging out with the band. There's like you and Lydia Lunch. My I, friend Jody Ravello, yes, right? of course. And there's uh, Gita Gash. And uh -huh. like, you know, everyone's like not 16, right? I mean, <laughs> you guys are like hanging out with the most dangerous band. Like, I mean, it's, people say like, oh, you know, bands are dangerous, but that band was... Well, they was, were was not as intense as it came. They were intense, but I don't know. I don't think I ever felt like there was anything bad about them. I think, you know, and Cheetah even says it in our movie that um, it wasn't like the London scene where kids were going around with razor blades and stuff. We were just young people who wanted to hang out with the bands. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's what we did. Were you around um, during the time of their uh, second album a lot? For, for their um, Oh, We Have Come For Your Children. Yeah, yeah very different record, right. very produced album yeah, than the first. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that. Because uh -huh. here you get the Dead Boys. They're, they go to make an album in Miami with the guy who played at Woodstock, Felix Pepillari. Oh, that's right, yes. Right? It's just a very strange record. But then I'm listening, looking at the record, I'm thinking like songs like I Don't Want to Be No Catholic Boy, Caught with the Son Meteor Now. Say? And then oh. I'm going like, is this Michael Lago or what? Ah, you know? oh, oh, yes, yeah, yeah. yes, yeah, yes, like, yes. You know? You can read about that in the book, too. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> okay. But it's... But it's um... Well, it's a very different record. Uh, to this day, I don't really know why they chose... You know, they went from Genya Raven mm -hmm. producing Young, Loud, and Snotty right. to Felix. Right. But on that second record, there were a couple of good things That's on there. Yeah, Wasn't Son of Sam yes, on there? Yes, yes. That was like an, almost like an eight-minute piece. <laughs> you know, unheard of for what you thought was a punk band. But, you know, I really enjoyed that record it yeah, just no, happened to be a, very very different interesting albums yes you know one of those interesting punk albums so um somewhere around this time um uh jerry brant comes into your life yeah uh, so and he's kind of a mentor figure but you end up at the the uh, the Ritz, and he's an interesting character. He had signed Joe Bryath, who's kind of like the first. Uh, Jerry Brandt became my first boss in the music business. Jerry worked his way out of the mailroom at the William Morris Agency. He helped bring the Rolling Stones here. He managed Carly Simon, the Voices of East Harlem. Um, he worked with Sam Cooke and Muhammad Ali back in the day. I mean, if that's not a list of characters, I don't know what is. Um, he went underground for, oh, and he opened the Electric Circus, which was on um, St. Mark's, thank you, St. Mark's Place. And, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix, like, lived there, you know, begged Jerry to play there in any event. Um, so, Jerry Brandt. Uh, yeah, 
So it's probably 1980, and I am, uh, I, you know, I tell this story in the movie too, but for all of you who have not seen, who the fuck is that guy on Netflix? <laughs> you know, shameless self-promotion. Um, for all of you who have not seen it, uh, I was walking down East 11th Street one day, and um, I saw a sign on a door, and it said video club opening. Now, you have to remember it's 1980. Uh, it's the, well, you know, it's the start of, uh, it was Michael, of MTV, and... Um, it just interested me. So I walked in, and you have to remember how beautiful the Ritz building is. It's, you know, it's an art deco space, and uh, so much character. So I walk in, it's empty, it's the middle of the day, and there's a man in the balcony, and he was like, kid, what do you want? <laughs> and um, I said, well, you know, I want a job. And he said to me, do you have a resume? And I said, I don't have a resume. I go to the School of Visual Arts, and I work part-time in a pharmacy. And for some reason, he just, um, he just liked that I said that. So it was, like I said, it was like the Wizard of Oz. I went up to the second floor into his office, and we just started talking about music. And I think he liked my... Um, I use this word a lot as well. He liked my exuberance as a young person. That, <laughs> if you don't know what exuberance means, you, like, it's like Auntie Mame, she would tell her nephew, whatever, you know, you don't know what heterosexual, write it down and go look it up when we're not together. No, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, so he liked my exuberance uh, that I knew about everything from um, big bands and jazz to top 40 and hard rock and heavy metal. And... Um, after our conversation, he said, I'm going to hire you. You're going to open my mail. You're going to get my lunch. And you're going to uh, answer my phone. And I thought, wow, I am in the music business now. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, that... that it, um, yeah, you know, and I, I was. I really was. It was the start for this 19-year-old kid who said... Growing up in Brooklyn, I'm going to be in the music business. Now, when you're 14, you don't know what that means. So, no, you don't. So I would watch uh, Don Kirshner's rock concert. I would watch uh, Soul Train with Don Cornelius, uh, Dick Clark's American Bandstand. And I think on Friday nights at 1130, it was one of the first places I saw Alice Cooper. It was uh, in concert. It was called in concert. Right. Uh, Friday nights at 1130. So... Um, I got this job, and it was kind of extraordinary because, like I said, I'm in the music business. So I listened very intensely to Jerry's phone calls, and his phone calls were all with booking agents. Now, keep in mind that room probably holds 1,800 people or so, and uh, I was listening to him make those deals. And after about a year, I... He was impressed with my use of language on the phone that he said, you can start booking little baby bands here. And um, like I said, it was just an extraordinary experience from 1980 to 1983. And in 1983, I kind of felt, well, you know, I think there's more out here. And that more manifested itself into my friend Mitchell Krasnow's dad, Bob Krasnow, leaving Warner Brothers, and he was going to restart Elektra Records. And from 83 until 2005, I was an A&R executive. And it was really, I was living the dream. 
I really was. You know, as corny as that sounds, that's what I wanted, and I got it. Awesome. Uh, now, talking about that, like, 83 period, that's yeah. still, like, the, and it's still, like, the last embers of uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll, record companies at the top, uh, not quite fully corporate yet, um, and A&R being the focus of it all, artist and repertoire. Right, you know, you guys were like, so kind of talk about what was going on. Like, what was like a record company? How did you sign, sign an artist? Because that's so foreign to people today. Sure. But when you say sex and drugs and rock and roll in the 80s, um, honey, sex and drugs and rock and roll is still happening. Yeah. And I, I just, you know, I had to, I had to stop the drug part because, um, you know, at some point I was just killing myself with alcohol and drugs. But in 83, um, all the major labels uh, were listening to their A&R people about what was going on out in the world. And what was going on for me was still uh, CBGB and all the underground uh, metal bands that were coming to New York to play in Brooklyn at L'Amour. And what, what was that? Oh, yeah. We, we live, you know, it's funny because I lived under New York Avenue on 55th Street and it was on 62nd Street. So I would walk there and I literally would crawl home from being so drunk. And we lived in a railroad apartment and like my mom would just kind of like pick me up and deposit me in bed if I didn't throw up along the way. And, um, but yeah, in the 80s, major labels were hungry for new mu music. And keep in mind that if you're not a great A&R person, you shouldn't even have a fucking job. Oh, did I, are you allowed to say F for it? Yeah. Um, you shouldn't have a job, but um, I really was good at the work. I, I knew how to spot people who had that it factor. And although I never signed the dead boy, someone like Steve Bader's had that it factor. James Hetfield from Metallica has that in fucking spades. For me, there is nobody greater. And, you know, at one point I, was, I went on the road with Dawkins and ACDC. And, you know, I was working with Dawkins, but the only reason I wanted to go on the road so I could see Brian Johnson every night sing <laughs> for ACDC. Um, and I did. So, you know, back then, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> Capitol Records, Electra Records, Warner Brothers, everyone was just looking for new things to sign. And, you know, not to toot my own horn, but I can do that just a teeny weeny bit. In 1984, when I did sign Metallica to Electra, yeah. that changed the face of rock and roll. That changed the face of what people were listening. Who is that? Oh. You just fucking threw me now. Okay. Uh, anyway, so I, wait a minute. I know you're going to be editing this later, so you can just get rid of some of the, them. So, uh, yeah, that signing changed the face of rock and roll. And what happened then was everybody wanted their own Metallica. Things like that happen every 20 years or so. But not to say that, you know, I still love Mila from, um, oh gosh, Creator. ah, Creator. Love him, uh, love them, love Slayer, love Metal Church, love uh, 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 Flotsam and Jetsam. All these bands that I felt were kind of unique and unto themselves were artists that I was starting to sign. And so were the other labels, you know. Uh, 
Tim Carr, may he rest in peace, uh, signed Megadeth to Capitol Records. You know, Rick Rubin signed Slayer. So everyone was getting signs, and it was just like a wonderful thing that all these bands who were in the underground were now going to that next level. And you were either going to sink or swim, and most of those bands swam. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they're still, you know, like Slayer, you know, I go see them every single time they play. It's, it's the, the noise is so stimulating to me. I just love every waking moment of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's the difference between, you signed a bunch of these bands. Yes. Like, what's the difference between a Metallica and a Metal Church and a Flotsam and Jetsam? I mean, you signed them all around the same time. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And the other two, I think, people I think, don't even know, know who we're talking about. Well, right? you know, or, I think mildly, just, you know. Right, I, I think just everybody just has their own sense of self and... Even though they are all heavy metal, they all just didn't sound like each other. And each band had their own bit of quality and charisma that I enjoyed, and that's why I signed them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I said, nothing was ever going to... I didn't know that then, but, you know, none of those bands ever got to that status of Metallica, but it didn't mean they shouldn't get signed. Right. You know, I was here to, like, help those bands and get them to that next level, and that's what artist uh, development was about right. back then. You know, you could sign... Um, a metal church, for instance, and you know, I had heard they made a record in Seattle on some little rinky-dink label. They sold 10,000 units, and I thought, oh, these are hard workers. And I like Kurt Vanderhoof because he writes all the songs in the band, and David Wayne was a great, great singer. May he rest in peace as well. We've lost many people over the years, but he reminded me of a young Rob Halford. And um, so back then, there was artist development. So when I signed them, that first record that we put out, The Dark, um, must have sold about 100,000 units. And that was like huge for metal bands back then who maybe, if you made a $5,000 video with them, were getting played on MTV at like five in the morning. You know, a, a lot of that stuff was. Uh, so... Yeah. Well, the, the point I was trying to get at with that was... Um, I, <sighs> um, one of my projects, the... No, it's like I talk too much and like my brain just gets... No, no, no. My brain just gets so stimulated that it just like breaks down. But thank God we have people like him here to help me move along and the... And the, and the, and the what is that called? The monkey show in the back? No, what was that? Old, you know, forget it. The peanut gallery. The peanut gallery. Thank you. Continue. Yes. Um, I had done this project, Lost Rockers, which was about musicians oh, yes. who kind of fell through the cracks. Yes. So kind of, I guess that uh, what my question was, the last one I was trying to get at, which is like, what's that fine line? Because somebody could write a couple good songs and somebody could be a superstar. And like, it's, it's really hard to tell. And like, you know, what, you know what's, the, what's the difference? How do you see it as somebody who's identified successes? Well, I you know, well wait, I think when we talk about, say, Lost Rockers, uh, it doesn't mean that those people were any less wonderful. It just not everyone can make it. It's just it's just how, that's how it is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about timing. It's about when records come out and how much marketing and promotion people are going to get. And it's like in my life when people say, "Why didn't you sign this person? Or why didn't you sign that person?" You know, I just couldn't have everybody in my life. It just doesn't work that way. There's not enough money to go around. So. Um, I just think it's one of those things. Not everybody winds up making it, and it doesn't mean that they were fa weren't fabulous. It's just mm -hmm. the way of the world. Right. So, like, um, oh, and, and here's another one: is that here we are in New York. Yes. And you know, it's really hard to side a New York band because, mm -hmm. especially from down here, because they're living these 
or were living these fringe lifestyles. <coughs> and me. it's not like a good business model for a corporation mm -hmm. to buy a bad who's like junkies and, mm -hmm. and live in this marginal lifestyle. So, but, but New York artists are like, they're like art in that it's influential mm -hmm. and it makes influence later. Like, uh, you have, not too many of your artists have been New York. And I was wondering if you saw, like, New York is kind of like a hard business model to sell. Like, in other words, you, you get a bunch of... Then? Yeah, because um, you get a bunch of corn-fed, hungry guys. You know, that's mm -hmm. a much easier way to work than to have, like... Yeah, I don't know if I, there's, uh, I could explain clearly about why there weren't too many bands. There was one band that I loved that I thought were going to be so huge. And, you know, kind of like nothing happened with their record. They were called Smashed Gladys. Man! I was, just, I was just on WR8. I was just on RAT in uh, um, Red Bank, New Jersey. And I played one of their tracks called Eye of the Storm. Man! Just as good as ACDC. I mean, it's just, it's like one of those things. You know, there's no rhyme or reason. It just didn't happen. Um, so, you know, I don't know. There's no explaining why some of my artists were not from New York. I was just, you know, back then I had a great assistant. Her name was Tony Quirk. And we would cut, we would get every magazine known to man in New York, in Boston, in Austin, in Dallas, Montreal. West Coast, and we would look for all the music sections, uh, and we would cut things out and go, oh, these bands aren't signed, start calling people. So that's how we kind of found our bands. But there really is no explaining what's going to make it and what's not. And these days, in 2019, it's so tough to get an artist signed because nobody buys records anymore. You know, there's streaming and there's stealing and, you know, there's Spotify and... You know, for me, I'm old school. I still want to hold that CD. I'm glad that there's been a I Peanut Gallery, I haven't gotten there yet. I'm glad... Oh, please. Wait, I, who is that you're going to get spanked when this is over? With pleasure. Um, you know, um, uh, uh, there's been this resurgence of vinyl, and my friend Daniel Ray just got me a new turntable and I started listening to vinyl again and the warmth that you get from these recordings is just stunning and because it has nothing to do with a compact disc and records being so compressed that you lose a lot as well but that's not what we were talking about we were talking about or I was talking about artists and 2019 you know um, I and bands not being from New York, I found a little band from South Florida. <clears throat> Excuse me. They're called, oh, do I get to keep this cup? <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> no, I love the art of the interview. <laughs> so my cousin Julie in Florida says, my next door neighbor's son has a band. Like, I haven't heard that for 30 years. <laughs> right. God forgive me. Most of the time, they're rotten. It's just rotten. And, you know, and if they're not rotten, they're good. And you can't sign good. Good don't cut it. So she sends me this uh, CD, independent, like they made 500 of them, and they sell them when they go on the road. And it's called There's Nothing Left for Me Here. Immediately, I just loved how dark and mournful that title was. 
I listened to the CD, and again, it's one of those things that I lost my mind. It ripped my head off. They were heavier than the, they are heavier than Metallica, and they're more like um, Phil Anselmo scour, like I Hate God, like uh, 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 Crowbar. Anyway, so I solicited about ten independent labels who sign metal these days, and about eight of the ten labels came back to me and said. Fabulous band. Their numbers are awful, and that meant you know they, they you know they could give some of these kids could give a shit about being on Twitter, you know. But they had low Twitter numbers and Instagram numbers and Facebook numbers. And to me, and hopefully to you, numbers mean nothing about how talented somebody is. So no, no, no. True. Yep. So finally, uh, a dear friend, Mike Gitter. Uh, who is uh, like a senior vice president of A&R on the West Coast, So Michael, I love this record, and I'm signing your band. Now, I know it's just, yeah, it's one of those things. We got that band to the next level. They're going to make a new record, and let's see what happens, you know. I have high hopes for them, so we'll see. Mm -hmm. uh, let's, let's talk about a few of your, your signings sure. that are kind of known and maybe some cool backstory you might have. But um, Metallica, like when they kind of came around, they were having trouble with their label, and they had this, all this kind of mess going on, and you kind of, kind saved, of saved them. Yeah, right, so kind of talk, talk about that, because it wasn't real, because I remember that. I remember that whole Megaforce thing. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Uh, me and Phil Cavano from Mon Monster Magnet went to see them at Lemoore in Brooklyn. We, again, lost our mind, um, and uh, I thought, uh, this is b before I even got my job at Elektra. So once I got my job at Elektra, I had them in my head. I knew that there was a small record label called Megaforce. Yeah, right on, Megaforce, in uh, Old Bridge, New Jersey. Um, but, you know, at that point in time, I think they had an Anthrax record out, a Raven record out, and kill them all. Um, but, you know, because of limited budgets and stuff, they just couldn't take some of these bands to that next level. And I kind of knew that. So uh, at one point in 83, I went to see the guys at the Stone in San Francisco and uh, blew me away. I mean, these were young people who were all wildly charismatic on stage. Your eyes darted everywhere because you just didn't know where to look. And I was totally in love with James Hetfield. Um, and I would always tell pe people, say, well, why did you sign them? And I said, because he had good teeth. <laughs> good teeth. Yeah. Um, anyway, so... Uh, when it was over, I went back and I said, oh, hi, Lars, uh, my name is Michael Alago. I do A&R for Electra, and here's my card. And I know that you're with another label, um, but if you ever want to talk to me, please. So I kind of forgot about it because I was just doing my day-to-day -day work. And at some point in the beginning of 84, Lars called me again and said, uh, we're coming to play Roseland as part of a triple-act bill. And that night, August 4th or 8th, 6th of 84, became one of the more historic nights in heavy metal. Uh, that, and that's because I signed Metallica. Uh, Island Records signed Anthrax, and Atlantic Records signed Raven. So uh, after that show was over, I went backstage, and I don't know if you saw it in the six-minute, maybe not in the six-minute clip, but, you know, I went backstage, and, you know, they have to be maybe all 21 years old. I'm 23 years old, and I'm drunk, and, of course, 
and uh, I'm hollering and screaming and carrying on and hugging and kissing everybody. And they're looking at me like, who is this person? <laughs> and Lars says, James, this is Michael Olago from Electra. Well, their tune changed after that. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it's like, you know, I think they loved that I was so young as well and that I was a record executive. And so the very next day they came to my office. Uh, they were sitting in the conference room and uh, Cliff Burton was still alive. Yeah. Yeah. Woo! Brother. And um, I got Chinese food and beer and uh, they wanted every cassette and bit of vinyl. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. 84, a yeah, bit of vinyl on Electra. And I felt like uh, that kind of, it just, it was magic. It just happened. And I wound up signing them, and the rest really is rock and roll history. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and just that here we are still talking about Metallica 35 years later, and they still play stadiums. That's a testament to being one of a kind. That's a testament to really being that effing good or great, you know? Really, it really is true. And you know, I still hear people say, oh man, their records are awful. They should have made Kill Em All, Ride the Lightning and, 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 and Master of Puppets again. But you can't do that because, you know, they are artists that they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. So they've just always followed their heart and made the music that they wanted to make. And you know, if you ask me, their latest release, Hardwired to Self-Destruct, goes back to those three records. And it's, it's extraordinary, and they're extraordinary. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sure. Um, another one of your interesting signings uh -oh. was, was, um, was uh, P.I.L. At oh, a very yes. strange time, it was about their fourth or fifth album. Sure. But, you know, you, you, I talk about going over people's heads. They have, like, this is not a love song, which is like, um, you're singing this on MTV. Mm -hmm. You know, singing this and is I not think, a love song on MTV. on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, like, uh, amazing. It's, yeah. like, this amazing, like, punk, like, talk about a record, like, like, all the records were too ahead of their time. But this, talk about, like, a... Well, I mean, I mean it's just a little bit more involved, and I'll try to yeah. make it all succinct. When I was at um, the Ritz, um, there was a weekend that I had Bow Wow Wow Right, I was going to ask if this connected yeah, to Ritz. It's Ritz's totally yes. connected. It's, yeah, yeah. 19, it's May of 1981. Right. Malcolm McLaren calls me on the phone and says, we're not coming. And I'm like, what are you talking about, we're not coming? Both nights is sold out. And he said, well, you know, Annabella is underage, and her mom won't let her get on an airplane. I'm like, I will pay for her mother to get on the plane with her, but you gotta come. And they said, well, we're not coming. Well, it was a, you know, sold out weekend, and everybody panicked at the club. The money people, the creative people, and I have no idea, and I don't remember how this happened, that I knew PIL were in town. They were at Liz Rosenberg's office, uh, head of publicity at Warner Brothers, and they were promoting, um, Flowers of Romance. Mm -hmm. But I'll backtrack to those other records because yeah. some of them didn't even come out here. Right, right. Because I, okay. So anyway, so uh, I called them on the phone and I said, you know, we um, don't have anybody booked for the weekend now because of 
Bow Wow Wow backing out. And they said, well, we're just here on a press junket. We don't have instruments. We don't have anything. And I was like, listen, you have to just come to my office. So um, I sent a limousine for them. And John, Jeanette, and Keith Levine and one of their people show up. And um, I talked them into doing this show. Little did I know that they wanted to do like a performance art piece. <laughs> and keep in mind, I think maybe Pill played once in New York. So everyone still wanted to see and hear Johnny Rotten, not John Lydon from Pill. So that May weekend, I think it was 1516, comes along. The Ritz was known for this super duper like 30 foot white screen. And uh, the evening was about to start. They were opening up with Flowers of Romance. We had rented a Profit Five for Keith to program 45 minutes of music into. And um, there was a certain beauty to it, although people don't ever talk about it like this. <laughs> Hello. Uh, that um, they were behind the screen, and there were all these white lights coming up from the floor. So all you saw were these black silhouettes of people dancing and kind of carrying on back, not carrying on, carrying on, but carrying on backstage, back, back behind the screen. And at one point, John just looked out and said, you know, we're never coming out from behind this screen. So, you know, I hope you got your money's worth. Well, 18 minutes in and sold out, of course. Beer cans, not beer cans, beer bottles, chairs were getting thrown at the screen. John continued to taunt people. And um, it was a shot heard around the world the next day. Tim Summer from Sounds Magazine wrote the cover article. They were on the cover of Sounds, NME, and what was the third publication back then? Melody Maker. Melody Maker, thank you. And I won't say Peanut Gallery this time because you were very helpful. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, all right, all right, wait. So all those publications. Uh, never mind that they were on the 6 o'clock news, the 11 o'clock news. And um, that night, uh, I just went into the dressing room and... I don't know, everybody was laughing and carrying on like it was funny, but it was really scary at some point in time. And we were all hoping that no one got hurt. But there was one kid who had, Drew, what was his name, please? Scott Rubin. Oh, Scott. And you know what? I just saw a second photograph that we never saw of Scott with John. Anyway, I'll show it to you later. Um, this kid had his head cut open from somebody throwing a bottle. He could have cared less. He just wanted to meet. Johnny Rotten. So I guess I brought him into the dressing room and everybody's doing speed and coke and drinking and champagne and this kid is like, you know, holding like an ice pack to his head and, but he could care less because he's meeting his idol. So anyway, um, five years pass and I have no idea why I'm back in contact with John and um, Virgin had not put out live in Tokyo, or this is what you want, this is what you yeah, get. Yeah. And I thought, well, these are two fantastic records that need to come out domestically. So I picked them up for the U.S. and Canada, and uh, I wanted to make a new record with him. He had an idea of making this record with all session musicians. Um, and Bill Laswell, from the, group, the bass player from Material, produced the record. And, you know, the record was called Album. The CD was called CD. The poster was called Poster. And it really was a, an extraordinary album. And it was one of those things that it didn't sell like I thought it was going to sell. Yeah. No, no, no. Not funny, because you're always here to... Uh, 
take that artist to the next level uh, artistically and sales-wise. Anyway, it just didn't wind up doing it for some reason or another. And his deal was so expensive that um, I wound up having to drop. I signed him in 85, and we dropped him in 86. And um, like I said, because his uh, deal, it would have cost us too much money to keep him. But all that to say, I'm still friends with John. It's been... 37 years. We never had a bad word with each other. As you see, he's very, very funny in the documentary. And I think he was, um, I think it's almost a bit of a side that people don't see him often. Um, he's quite the character. And he is usually the smartest person in the room. And um, he really is something else. So that's Pill. Yeah. And then there's... Um a local band who many of us knew from playing around, which was uh -oh. White Zombies. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I wrote in Sean's book about booking their first show. Okay. And, and being around them and thinking, like, what a good... I felt sorry for them almost because <laughs> they were, like, so bad, right? And um, They were. But they got good. And then, but, and then you... But you... I was, like, shocked. Like, they moved to L.A. and they kind of changed the entire Hollywood music scene overnight when they moved there too, right? I mean, they're like sure. these exotic animals who come there and like... Where did you book them first? Do you remember? Lismar Lounge. Oh, the Lismar. Yeah. Oy vey. I remember one, no, 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 no. I remember one night Rob and I went there drinking uh -huh. and all of a sudden we hear some noise coming from the basement. So we go, let's go downstairs. The music's about to happen. Yeah. Gigi Allen. <laughs> Honey. The moment I said, oh, Rob, it's Gigi Allen. Because you knew shit was, literally shit was going to start flying soon. So, um, Lismar Lounge, yeah. I saw them at a little club. It wasn't really even a club. It was just like a black space that was under um, a restaurant that's still here called Indochine. It's yes. on Lafayette. Yeah. And like I said, Indochine. Oh, you did? Okay. And like I said in the movie as well, um, they were just these young people with dreadlocks. And uh, Daniel Ray, once again, my friend Daniel Ray, producer, wrote Pet Cemetery for the Ramones. He was, uh, who, who, Chris, Chris, he was in Monster, uh, Masters of Reality. Mm -hmm. uh, Daniel's he was, fabulous. He was in your first band you signed, probably. <laughs> he was Shrapnel, that's yeah. right, from Red Bank, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Right on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, so I go, Daniel says, you have to see this band. Daniel was then uh, getting uh, Circus of Power signed to RCA. He got Raging Slab signed to RCA, but RCA wanted nothing. Nobody wanted anything to do with them. Yeah. They were really not like so good. Yeah. Um, and like I said in the movie, like I went back and they were like in a corner and I just stood there kind of in awe of the noise. I am a person who doesn't like things sweet. I like things dark and ominous and uh, it just does, it just stimulates my brain for some reason. So when they came off stage, they were sweaty and dirty and fabulous and I talked to Rob and I said you know what I love you and I'm gonna sign you and he said to me I think we're gonna be famous and I'm gonna make movies <laughs> I get a little choked up about that because um, they were like my favorite people 
that like I had ever signed. And I, maybe I had only signed two things prior to that, but they were awesome. And once I said that, they would be at my house every night, and we would make frozen pina coladas in a blender, and we would have either black exploitation night or white exploitation night. So uh, please, whatever that meant. Like well, like white exploitation night was like we would listen to the Carpenters and stuff like that. But black exploitation night, we would see like you know, get coffee with yeah, yeah, Pam yeah. Greer yeah, yeah. and Blackula, yeah, yeah. and oh, we would just sit on the floor and laughing and screaming and carrying on and getting fully tanked. And we talked about music and how this kind of like, now that they were going to be on a major label, this all fucking needed to change. And they were either going to come along for the ride or not. And they knew what they had to do. We talked about songs. We talked about arrangements of songs. And finally, funny enough, I had them do a demo with Jim Thurlwell. Uh, I don't know if any of you know Jim. He's a I guess you would call him a bit avant-garde, yeah. and but fetus. you know, yeah, he, yeah. Jim went under the name Fetus for all of his records. Yeah, you got Fetus on your breath, Fetus under glass, Fetus uberales, Jim, fetus. scraping Fetus off the wheel. Yeah. Thank you, and um, so he produced a little demo for us. The demo was fabulous, but he had an ego, and Rob had an ego, and it just didn't work. Now, um, so I had to kind of think quick because I wanted to start moving with this record. And we loved what Andy Wallace did on the Slayer records. Mm. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so we hired Andy Wallace to make that first record, uh, Las Exorcisto, Devil Music Volume 1. And this is going to be a little bit of an extended story, but a very wonderful story as well. We make, Daniel Ray, I think, mixes the record. So the record comes out. I have everybody at Geffen Records psyched that this is going to be a million seller. And it stops selling at 180,000 units. And, you know, everybody's like, yeah, Lago, what are you going to do now? Well, I didn't have to do anything unbeknownst to me. These two deranged characters on MTV called Beavis and Butthead decided, <laughs> yes. Mike Judge. Mike Judge, honey, that's right. Uh, I'm glad, yeah, Mike Judge uh, had these two crazy little guys, and they decided that White Zombie was their new favorite band. <laughs> oh, yes. And, you know, like, it's one of those things, you know, it wasn't a planned marketing scheme or it wasn't anything planned at all, but they started playing um, uh, uh, Thunder Kiss 65. And that catapulted that record to sell over a million copies. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like you never know where you're going to get that help from. Mm -hmm. And, um, but it was because of Beavis and Butthead and Mike Judge. Mm -hmm. That's my white zombie story. A few years after that, you're bringing up the talk about Daniel Ray. And there's, yes. Um, there's a Misfits record without Ooh. Glenn Danzig. Ooh. And, uh, which is actually a pretty good record. Yes, it's, it's a, a, very, record. It's it a also very good record. It teaches you like, the greatness of Glenn Danzig, right? Absolutely. Um, but uh, that was a... Um, I remember I did an interview with Jerry Oli, probably through you, and Jerry was telling me that he... It was before the record came out, but he was pretty sure that it could give Thriller a run for its money. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Jerry. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't, but, but, you know, so talk, about, so talk sure. about that you're, like, taking a, a brand. Yes, yes, but of like, course. But, like, you know, it's, you're something, something different with a band. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, these days I, I liken it to a lot of things, and I'll keep this part short. You know, it's like I had been a Misfits fan since 82. I had booked them at some point in 83 at the Ritz. Ritz yeah. I would follow them wherever they went. I mean, they really are one of those bands that are so unique that there's nobody like them at all. Those songs, they were pop songs, but under the guise of uh, horror movies. Yeah. So, uh, you, know, you know, and why I talk about this, I, I liken it to like, you know, these were, Jerry was, is a great songwriter. And, you know, I kind of felt back then, like, because they lost their singer doesn't mean that they need to lose their life as musicians. So when they told me they had a young singer named Michael Graves, I went to hear them and I thought, oh, this guy's like a real pop guy. And I thought, well, that's the kind of record we're going to make then. And uh, we did, and it's a record called American Psycho. And once again, I think Andy Wallace made that mm -hmm. record, and Daniel Ray was involved as well. Um, and it did okay, it did okay. But it actually is an extraordinary album. And you know, I talk about bands like that because backstage we were also, and I'll keep this as brief as I can. You know, it, we, I was talking about when bands lose their singers. So, in this case, you know, Glenn didn't die, but they lost their singer. Uh, Steve Bader dies, so the Dead Boys lose their singer. Queen loses Freddie Mercury. I, you know, and I always think that, again, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. These people all had, like, great, great songs. Like, well, what was Brian May supposed to do? Go sit in his house and just sit there and not make music? No, it was a horrible thing that Freddie Mercury died. But you know what? He found this young, gay artist. Oh, I don't know how do you, these words. That replaced Freddie. It's not Freddie, but it's a version of Queen now that are going on the road. I think Adam is marvelous. I love his style. I love how camp he is. And you know what? It's not Freddie Mercury, but he pulls off those fucking songs. And I think when, like I said, when artists lose their singers, you can't expect them just to go in a garage or you know, shoot themselves or not ever play again because all that material, whether it's the Dead Boys or Queen, is also fabulous. Sorry I went off on that tangent. That's good. Um, we could sit here and talk for a long time. Oh, my God. Why are we out of time? No, we're going to start wrapping. I'm going to oh. start asking a few more questions. I'm going to take some okay. questions from the audience. Sure. Um, uh, one other artist I just want to mention in yes. here is uh, Nina Simone. Oh, yeah. And of, of course, she's wonderful, but, but she's also a very dark, complex character, too. Yes. So kind of tell us about what... Tell us about the real Nina sure. Simone. Sure. If you know nothing about Nina Simone, she was uh, you know, a black artist who was involved with the civil rights movement in the 60s and um, very, very vocal. Um, and uh, at one point she wrote this song, she wrote two songs that were very, very powerful back then that people still perform uh, called Mississippi Goddamn. And at one point, Aretha Franklin named her, I believe, 1972 album to be Young, Gifted, and Black. Two songs that Nina wrote. Very powerful stuff. Nina Simone was an artist that she could sing Bob Dylan. She could sing and did sing George Harrison. She could take the French artist Jacques Brel and reinterpret his French into English. And you would think that she wrote these songs because she was someone who knew had to get to the heart of the matter of a song and make it her own. Um, also, 
so charismatic. Don't get on her bad side because she will destroy you. But when she was, you know, she had bipolar, and that wasn't um, diagnosed till later in life. So with whatever medications she took, she loved that bottle of white wine. And I think, as we all know, if, you, if anybody's on any kind of serious medication, you can't be drinking bourbon and you know, white wine with your meds. Um, but she did, and that didn't help with her disposition. When I signed her in 1992, she was kind of washed up. But I thought, this was somebody who's so extraordinary, who should have one last hurrah, you know? And I gave her that. We were friends for the last 15 years of her life. And I totally adored her. It's like one of those things when people say to you, if you're on a desert island and you could pick five bands or five songs that uh, you want to hear on that desert island, I think I would only listen to Nina Simone ever again, no matter what, because she is so inspiring to me. There was nobody like her. If you don't know about her, and the beauty of Google and YouTube these days is you could see all these marvelous clips there from artists, like from her from the 60s to when she passed in 2003. I made a record with her called Single Woman. And we modeled that record against Frank Sinatra's album, A Man Alone, which was weird because it was so unlike a Frank Sinatra record. It was words and music by Rod McEwen. Rod McEwen was a 70s gay poet. Can you imagine, like, gay poet and Frank Sinatra? <laughs> yeah. Frank, Rod McEwen was revered by Johnny Cash, by Dolly Parton, by um, Mitch Miller, who was an A&R person back in the day at Columbia, I believe. Anyway, so I just wanted to make this record with her. And uh, we, we likened it to Frank's A Man Alone, to the very last Billie Holiday record, Lady in Satin. We made it with a 50-piece orchestra. Andre Fisher, who was then married to Natalie Cole at the time, he was the drummer in Shaka Khan's Rufus, produced that album for me. And it's a very lush, beautiful, slit your wrists record. But that was the, you know, we made this record about love and loneliness and loss. We made it in 92, 93. She passed 10 years later. And um, that was one of, one of the worst things ever. Because I was going to visit, I went, was going to visit my dad's grave. It was April, I don't know, April 2003. And something said, call Nina. So I just went back upstairs, dropped everything. And I knew she had had a stroke. And I knew she had uh, breast cancer. And so uh, she was living in Aix-en-Provence in the south of France. So I called her. And uh, Juanita, the housekeeper, answered. He said, well, you know, Miss Simone is really, really not doing so well. I said, well, you know what, Juanita? You just have to put the phone up to her ear. And we just had this thing with each other. And she would be like, sugar lips, why didn't you ever marry me? <laughs> and I was like, Nina? I totally love you, and um, I'm going to come to the south of France tomorrow. So it was really, she couldn't talk at all. And so the housekeeper was there. She took the phone. I said, tell her assistant to pick me up in Marseille, and I'm coming tomorrow to visit. So I went to my father's grave that day. I got home. I went to bed. I forgot the computer on, and I, I, I never watched CNN on my computer, so it was one of those things. Um, and the computer was on, and it said Nina Simone dead at 70. The worst feeling ever in life. 
I couldn't listen to her records for two years. And then I thought to myself, you love this person so much, and you love the music so much, and the music was magic. Start filling the air with her sounds again. And, you know, I still listen to Nina to this day. I recommend her to every young singer-songwriter uh, and just people in general who want to hear something very unique. Um, and I have many stories about her. You could read about it in the book. <laughs> hey, Michael, I wanted to say something about Nina Small. And Tom. The fucking oh. peanut gallery. Yeah. No, there's, a, there's something really to be said about this. Yes, please. We've been friends forever. Yes. And we went to a lot of shows. Yes. And there was a time when Nina Simone played at the Urban Plaza. Yes. And you're like, We're gonna, let's go to the show. And I'm right. like, I don't want to see Nina Simone. Right. And, you know, it was sort of like, you know, whatever. We went to punk rock. We went to disco. We went to all sorts of stuff. But I didn't know who Nina Simone really was. We go to this show, and she was intense. It was almost like seeing John Lydon in a way. She was tough. She really played hard out and there wasn't like a dry eye in the house when she did like Alone Again Naturally. Oh, sure. Afterwards, we talked and she was so intimidating. But what was interesting about that point, and I just have to bring this up to everybody because I was with Michael at that show, is, is that Michael meets her and she, she's, he's like, I'm the A&R guy from Electra. She's like, you got to be kidding me. And it ends up that there's this dynamic going on between the two of them. That's in 1982-83. Years progress, and this is one of the hardest working female singers in the music business forever, who's been through so much hell and back, right? Michael ends up creating a relationship and a friendship with her, signs her five years later. I mean, it's unbelievable to me. Nina Simone, the way you talk about her now, it's like she nobody would give her the time of day then. Michael spent so much time with her developing her, bringing her to a level, and it's so sad that artists like her aren't here to see what's going on in the afterlife, but I just had to bring that up because well, I thank think you. people realize that what you did for her was Oh, real, well, I completely adore her, so thank you very much. Where are we going now, yeah. honey? Sorry so, uh, yeah. well, so, so, um... You know, living in New York, one of the great things about New York is we always meet these incredible characters. And but Spike and we always say, Polite. You, make, but you know Spike Polite? Yes, I, I do. I yeah. love Spike Polite. <laughs> well, that's not where I was going here. But um, what I was going to say, <laughs> what I was going to say is that we always say like, oh, they should make a movie about that person. But well, here there is the movie about you by director uh, Drew Stone. Uh, really, a beautiful tribute. Um, kind of talk about. Not just the process of making, I don't care about the, the filmmaking process, but like what it was like for you to be projected on film and what, how it's changed you. Like, because you obviously have a different view of yourself when you could get outside of yourself. It's very difficult to be objective about anything uh, said or written about oneself. But here is a film that kind of like captures you and also it's, um, but it's got to be life changing. So I, I just kind of, Talk about all that. Oh, where to begin? Because it is kind of a long story. Um, no, 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 no. Um, life changing. Well, I was, 
You know, Drew and I met in 1997 because uh, he knew I had signed the Misfits and he was managing a little band called Sub-Zero, uh, oh, yeah. right? Love Lou, you know, fabulous. And um, they wanted to open for the Misfits in Europe and uh, Drew spoke to Jerry only. Jerry said yes. We all wound up going to Spain and wherever we went. All I remember is fighting and beer. That's all I remember. <laughs> and I was doing both of that. Um, many years later, I think Drew called me on the telephone and we had a wonderful conversation. For me, in my head, I thought, oh, this is strange that somebody wants to make a movie about me. But I was flattered. And I think what happens is the ego takes over. And, um, you know, we had lunch and we had many get-togethers. And I felt like, and I think Drew says this all the time, and I say this all the time, that we both love music so much that I knew I was in great hands. And I was in great hands. And then our dear friend Michael Alex came on to produce the documentary. Michael, I think, had... Prior to that, worked for, did you work at MTV for 18 years? Exactly. Michael worked at MTV for 18 years. So he brought in another side, another element to all this insanity. And um, so we then just started making the movie. You know, I had never, even when I was not working with artists anymore, thank God I never... Uh, I never had bad relationships with people. It was just like one of those things. So. When Drew said, like, who are we going to get to do this? It took a while because, you know, Cindy Lauper is on the road. Uh, you know, Metallica. Oh, yeah, yeah, Metallica. They're a corporation. You know, they're always on. No, 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 they're always on the road. Um, but what wound up happening is we just called all these people, and they all said yes. And they all um, spoke about me. It, you know, I had different relationships with all these people, but they were all very loving and all very creative. And uh, I think it took almost four, three or four years to get it done. And uh, Drew, did you come up with that title? Yeah, you did. Oh, no, no, yes, okay. Oh my God, you know what? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't be fresh. Um, the movie, well, even prior to the movie, but his whole thing at the beginning of the movie, he would see me night after night, and he would say, who the fuck is that guy? So we loved it. it the title rolled off our lips, and then maybe I added the fabulous journey in there, and uh, maybe, I have no idea. Sometimes, sometimes I wonder, like, this whole thing came off without a hitch, because sometimes the brain just stops working. Um, and thank God I don't drink a drug anymore, because I... I'd be dead. In any event, it was a process, and um, how's it changed my life? Uh, I'm flattered. I think, well, no, I am flattered that somebody would even want to do that. I had a very exciting life. I had very, uh, you know, like, uh, it, nothing, it was not all roses. You know, I was very sick in the 90s, and uh, I'm a survivor, and... Um, People see me on the street now. I was telling you backstage, I was getting off the subway, the, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago on 14th Street, and there were guys working on the subway tracks, you know, the MTA, and the guy, just, you know, this is what everybody does these days, and they look at me and go, are you that guy? And I'm like, yes, I'm that guy. And he was like, wait a minute, I have to take a picture with you, because if I told my wife I met you, she'd be pissed off that I didn't take the picture. So he jumps up from the platform, gets on the platform from the tracks, and he happens to have this little camera in his um, 
pocket and he says, oh, but you know, like I'm so dirty from working. I said, honey, I've been there. I'm no dirty. <laughs> so he was like, okay. So I just you know, grabbed him the way I always grab everybody. And we took this picture. And I just think it's funny and uh, wonderful that Drew just didn't even just concentrate on like, this is a music doc. Yes, of course it's a music documentary, but it's about a life. It's about a life in music. It's about addiction. It's about recovery. It's about having full-blown AIDS in the 90s and not having a pill to take prior to antivirals. And, you know, like, here I am. And it's like years later, and... Um, you know, and so he covered the waterfront in my life. And, you know, I survived. You know, we know lots of people who there are documentaries out about them and they're dead. Well, thank God I'm not dead. And you know, one of the other beauties of modern medicine and that I don't drink or do crack anymore, thank you, coming up, well, hello, on 12 years is that they can't even find the virus in my body anymore. It's at zero. It's like, that's a fucking miracle to begin with. You know what I mean? So, you know. I, I, I take great care of myself these days. Uh, you know, it's like, it ain't, this ain't nothing to fool around with. You know, many of my brothers and sisters died in the 80s of, uh, of yeah. HIV, of AIDS. And, you know, a lot of people that I know, they're still doing, gay guys that I know, they're still doing like crystal meth on the weekend. And I'm like, dude, you know, I had a friend come over recently, he goes, can I talk to you? I said, of course. And he said, well, you know, me and these friends, we would, high all weekend. And he goes, well, I just found out that I zero converted and I'm positive. And I, you know, I wanted to yell at him and say, you know, at 50 years old, you're zero converting, but you can't do that. You have to have compassion and you have to listen. And, you know, we had long talks about, you can't carry on like this anymore. I mean, you could do whatever the fuck you want, but you know, once you zero convert, I said, there's good news and there's good news. The good news is there's medicine. The other good news is if you take care of yourself the way I take care of myself, you're going to live a very long and productive life. Amen. Well, on that note, I'd like to bring out uh, Tony Mann, our co-host, with some questions from... And we also know each other from CBGB's when Absolutely. you were at the door with Hilly all those times. Absolutely. So yeah. that's 100 years. No doubt. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Well, let's hear from Michael Lago. Of course, Stephen Black. So, uh, Michael, I, I have a few, and of course, Drew Stone. Our fearless leader, yeah. director, yeah. and Michael Alex. And Michael Alex as well. Producer. And so I have a few questions. Uh, some of the people are here, some of them not. This is from somebody you might know, Howie Pyro. Yes, of course. Okay, so uh, uh, this could be trouble. That's, <laughs> not too bad. Oh, good. Uh, being that you know you're into heavy music, but on uh, social media you take a very positive, upbeat stance. Talk about that, maybe spirituality and you know, sure. You're very yeah. upbeat. Yeah. Since you're standing there, please could you just go in that private room and grab that bottle of water right there? Even though I don't know your name yet, but that'll change in a minute. It's, I think there. it's right there in the front. Here. Okay. Oh, you got uh, some water? Yes. You know, uh, you. oh, you wonderful. Here, have mine. 
Thank God it's closed. Thank you. <laughs> I can't give this kid enough. Thanks, Dad. Oh, yes, we'll take that Thank anyway. You. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, give one back to Drew. <laughs> no. Uh, okay. So, um, you know, I love social media. I love meeting people. You know, so I'm always on Facebook and I'm always on Instagram. And, you know, I post about music and art and theater and uh, the power of positive thinking. I had always loved that Norman Vincent Peale book that came out in the 60s. And for me, I just want to put goodness out there into the world. We know how insane our world is these days, uh, personally, professionally, politically. Um, I don't want to get involved in any of that. Other people do that better than I do that. So like I said, I, you know, I wake up every morning and whether you are, uh, have faith or are an agnostic or an atheist or whatever, or have some kind of faith in yourself or in the greater universe, um, here we go again. Oh, yeah, so uh, that I, I, like, I just, like I said, I just want to put goodness out there. And I want, that goodness, I think, helps people just, uh, it motivates people. And um, I, I, I'm, once again, uh, I have no idea where I'm going with this. this is, you know what? This no, has gone on way too long. That's okay. So. It's, it's refreshing. We like that you put out positive. Yeah. You put well, out okay. positive energy. I, I'm always putting out positive yeah. energy. And, you know, there was something that I saw today that everyone can kind of relate to. So I'll just find that for you and maybe read it to you. And I think it will um, resonate. Okay. With all of us. And that'll only be like, you know, 30 seconds. Oh, suicide. That was last night at the Bowery Electric. It was fabulous. Uh, Okie dokie. And can I even find what I am talking about? <laughs> ah. Ah. Whenever you make a mistake or get knocked down by life, don't look back as it's too long. Mistakes are life's way of teaching you. Your capacity for occasional blunders is inseparable from your capacity to reach your goals. No one wins them all, and your failures, when they happen, are just part of the growth. Shake off those blunders. How will you know your limits without an occasional failure? Never quit. Your turn will come. So, uh, you know, I think that's so inspiring for people to hear words like that these days because, like I said earlier, all the insanity that's going on in the world today. So that's the kind of stuff I want to put out there to inspire one, to, uh, to make your day better. Uh, you know, it's not like Pollyanna or anything because, you know, we're all on this journey together. It's like last year in February, my 94-year-old mother died. I could have drank again. Did I drink? No. I was there. You know, I think when you are present in your life, you just show up. You show up for your life. You show up for your friend's life, your family's life, your lover, your partner's life. It, that's all I want to put out there. Thank you. Very good. Okay, so uh, next question from... Uh, our friend Brian Machutin, he's right over here. Oh, Brian. Um, yeah. Yes, Brian Machutin. Who always invites me he's to Halloween here, parties and I never go. That's right. You gotta go. He's I'm always afraid parties. of not dressing up. No, you gotta come. You okay, gotta go fine. to the party. Okay, uh, have you ever uh, signed a band who turned out to be total assholes and you regretted signing them? <laughs> Sorry? 
Um, no, not really. Okay. It's like we have to go on to the next question. Okay. So no. Next question from our celebrity door person, oh. R.B. Corbett. Okay. Um, a lot of a lot of uh, music and heavy music is played out. Will Danger ever return to rock and roll? Well, I don't know. When you say played out, uh, like I said, I think there's artists that we know about or hope to know about soon that are making dark music. And I guess depending on where you come from and what your life situation is, um, uh, hold on a second. I'm tired. Uh, yeah. No, wait a minute. Okay. okay. Yeah. No, no, it's all, it's all good. Um, well, there's a lot of fluff out there. But mm -hmm. I think, you know, I don't know about danger, but I think there are artists out there who make important music. Okay. One of the records that I heard this year that for me was the most important record that came out the end of 2018 was Ministry's record, Americant. And, uh, and, the, and, and the American was the KKK in that thing. Look, for me, danger, yeah, sure, there's a bit of danger in what Al Jorgensen does, but it's more, like, important and relevant lyrically, conceptually. Mm -hmm. So I think, to, I'm sorry I didn't answer it that way no, that's great. from the beginning, but uh, I think people like Al, who are still around yeah. after all these years, yeah. are making the best music of their life. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, maybe one more uh, from Charlie Crespo. He's Charlie. Right, there he is. Charlie, uh, at what point did you realize you could make a transition from being a fan to a music mogul? Like yeah, uh, I don't know about mogul, but I'm a very hard worker. Mm -hmm. uh, I was always a fan, and I talk about this too in other interviews a little bit. Um, you know, I always approached everything from a fan's point of view, uh, and that's, you know... That's just how I operated, you know? Uh, so I'm still a fan. I think for a minute, because I had worked at corporations for so long, for 25 years, I didn't get jaded, but you know, I had to listen to music differently because I worked for major organizations. And you can't fool around. You know, that's what the A&R department is for. If you don't have great A&R people and you don't sell records, you don't have a job. So I had to think like that. But I never signed anyone that I didn't love. I had to feel something for the artist. Uh, and so, uh, does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay, yeah, great. Absolutely. Awesome. So come on, everybody. Let's hear from Michael Lago. Let's hear from Michael Lago. Thank you. Standing ovation. Uh, please hang out, Michael. Uh, has some uh, items for sale. Uh, you could please. Uh, hang I have up. no items for sale. <laughs> I'm for sale. Okay, um, I got it. But no, I have. I, you know what, Drew? I found some posters that we have that are really cool. So from the movie, who the fuck is that guy? So if you want a, a signed poster, I could sign a poster. Okay. We could hug. We could shake hands. <laughs> we could kiss. Hello? Awesome. Uh, yeah, well, you know, whatever. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I don't know, what are we doing? Okay, you, you could go. You're I could go. Yeah, okay, yeah. Thank come you. on. <laughs> but I'll be right back. Yeah. In case you um, want a poster. Please, um, next month, uh, Art of the Interview with uh, John Holmstrom, Punk Magazine, Ramones cover artist. 
Uh, Want to thank you all for coming. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night.